Hi, Louis. Hi, Gavin. How are you? Oh, I'm down to murder. What? What? <laughs> Let's rob. <laughs> That's a little, I was not expecting that. That's a little bling ring reference for all you guys out there. Hi, everyone. Hello. Welcome to the Mixed Review. We're just feeling a little ooky spooky. That's oh, all. Yes. It is the start of Halloween season. My Halloween video is up, even yes. though I said I wasn't going to do one. And then I was inspired by this great Canadian sketch comedy series called Baroness Von Sketch, which you Baroness should watch. Von Sketch. Is yeah. it spooky? No, no, not at all. But they did a sketch about a carnival ride, a carnival haunted house ride. Mm. And so I used it as the bookends this year. There yeah. you go. So it was... Good for you, Gavin. Creating yeah. the content. The content. Welcome to the Mixed Reviews, everyone. See how inclusive I can be? Wow, Gavin. Everyone. Everybody. Everyone. Living and dead. Yes, absolutely. We have ghosts in this room right now. <laughs> we'll look out behind you. Um, we're a podcast in mm. which we talk about film subjects such as an actor or director or mini genre. And we dissect it. We get in deep. We take all the guts out. And we tell you what's good and what's bad. <laughs> the eye work you're doing right now is incredible. And of course, everybody at home can see yeah. it. I just so. want you to, I want everyone to know that Gavin's um, eyebrow game is very strong. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. You, I have very thin eyebrows. But People they're express, spent... expressive, though. Oh, Expressive. Good. Covetous of them, I've heard. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> that the, murder? What, that's it. That's the one feature. It's the one. People are like, I like your eyebrows. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys for listening. Coming back to yes. us. We are starting officially the Ookie Spooky Cookie Bookie season. The season that I uh, relents to Gavin. Yes. And um I'm at my strongest. Yeah, let let Tara reign. <laughs> um before we get into the Ookie Spooky though. Yeah. The the exact opposite of Ookie Spooky, our old business is still about the Disney Renaissance. Yay! Which I thought was a very fun episode. Oh, I, it was. I was nervous after I, I texted you as soon as I left, and I was like, I forgot to say so many things. Specifically, the Mulan like started out as a yeah. yeah as Mulan was a start was another project, yeah. and then they like mashed it together with something else. It yeah, was supposed it wasn't to be gonna be a theatrical release. And, yeah, the yeah. original project was called China Doll. It was yeah. gonna be direct to video, and they were like, wait, what about this other story? And yeah, yeah see, I'm letting you get it in now. Thank you, thank okay. you. Um, we asked you guys to go online and vote for your favorite Disney Renaissance movie. And the results are in, and kind of crazy yeah. numbers. The Lion King, which this shocked me to my core. It came in at last at 15%. Um, my pick, Mulan, came in at 18%. Aladdin, which is Gavin's pick, came at 26%. And Beauty and the Beast beat them all at 41%. I suddenly felt bad. I was like, did we not talk about Beauty and the Beast enough? Was there... <sighs> I mean... What, but what was there left to say? Yeah. You know? We all know. Yeah. Um, Everybody's in the know. Uh, but what was great about this poll is oftentimes we'll put up a poll and we'll say, if you vote other, please tell us what you vote. And we'll get like one, two responses. This time we didn't even give other as an option, but nope. we're just like, just in case. And everybody across the board is split. In fact, I think every other movie in the Disney Renaissance got a vote. Really? Except for Tarzan. And Rescuers Down Under. Yes. A yes. lot of love for Hunchback. A lot, lot of Hunchback love. A lot of Hercules, Hercules love. Yeah. Well, uh, Sam in love with Hercules. I will, I will it's not. It's implied. I will. <laughs> um, baby, I think you mean Hercules. <laughs> um, and yeah, and there was love all around, I think. Yeah. Um, and we got some good notices about it, too. Like, really nice comments. Yes, and a lot of nice things. I think people have a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of goodwill to Disney. And, you know, if you want to uh, further engage with 
us uh, on Disney things on our Instagram right now. We ha- we're doing a little informal poll chat about I want songs. Yeah, tell us what's your favorite. I I cut together like a little montage. I had to shorten it again for Instagram because that has to be below a minute. The but. full shade of not even including man like me. Human oh, like does me? Tarzan have songs? <laughs> what's the I name did of that not song? Know. I want to know. I don't know. I don't know. Can you show me? I don't know what you're talking about. What these strangers... Okay. <laughs> strangers like me. There it is. I, I got there. I got there. You did eventually. <laughs> um, while we're talking about comments too, and before we get into this week's topic, while we're still in old business, we did get another iTunes review. Thank you so much, M. James, who left this review. The subject is thorough and exciting. These two do it right when it comes to being true critics. They don't always agree for the sake of agreeing, and they seek the truth in various aspects of film. Deep dives without the tabloid rhetoric are the best. Ah, thank you, M. James. Facts are facts, America. Absolutely. Um, Brown cow, stunning. We appreciate you writing in, and we appreciate everyone listening. Um, so let's uh, let's uh, let's let's move out. Let's 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 let the Renaissance be away exactly. and gone with the wind. The colors of the wind. <laughs> the the uh, Renaissance ends and camp rain. Oh yes, yeah, spooky camp rain. Spooky camp. Gavin, who are we talking about today? Today we're talking about and. We are talking about Vincent Price. Oh my God. This, how, how long have you been waiting? This is my moment. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Last year, I floated Vincent Price as a topic, and Louis' response so, was, who? Uh, okay. Well, yeah. Well, everyone, <laughs> I, I do want to say this. Vincent Price is maybe in our generation, it's sad to say, maybe not the most well remembered. He has been dead for over two decades. So I think a lot of his content has perhaps not maintained the the pop culture um, saturation that it once had. Yep. Uh, please don't turn off this episode because it's somebody you haven't heard of. Please listen to his story. Um, take it in as you would anybody else's. Doing this show really allows us an outlet to talk about the things we want to talk about. And I don't know. Vincent Price has been... A passion of mine. It's not like it's funny. The other day, I was like listing the things we have in common. You and like me. like a girl with a school like a schoolgirl crush. Uh-huh, like uh-huh. I was like, we are both colorblind. We've both broken our nose multiple times, and the first time we broke our nose, we both reset it ourselves. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he, unfortunately, he's a lot taller than me. Yeah. He also has blue eyes, right. and I don't. So but when is the procedure, Gavin? Yeah, yeah. I know it's gonna, it's gonna happen. Um, but, Where's the locket of hair that you keep? Oh, you know about that. <laughs> I told Dan to be quiet. Um, but yeah, Vincent Price, I don't know. Vincent Price has just been a, a passion of mine. He is, it's so funny because he's so well known for his horror work, but actually, if you look at his filmography, uh, less than half of it is horror stuff, but that's just because that's what he was famous for. Right. Um, infamously, Vincent Price was someone who was always worried about money. And so he took the jobs that were offered to him. A lot of those jobs were being spooky, ooky, kooky. And he did it so well. I mean, not even just that, though, but like B-list movies, like very um, low budget. Well, I mean, the things that sort of kept him in 
the public conscious in the 60s was the American International Roger Corman Poe Cycle, right. which were seven or eight films directed by Roger Corman based on Poe stories, oftentimes loosely, sometimes literally just When you say Poe stories, you mean Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe. Yes, correct. Everyone. Um, at Vincent Price starred in almost all of them. There's only one in that cycle that does not have him as one of the leads. And yeah, it just sort of saturated the market with these kind of gothic-y, extravagant takes, as well as kind of cheaply made, but really beautiful in their own right. Mm-hmm. Simplistic, interesting. When, when, like, when, when did you like discover him? Like, What was your like introduction to him? I was thinking about this today, and actually I think my very first introduction to him was was the magic mirror in fairy tale theaters snow white and you my queen with a vanity unsurpassed and a soul of cruelty shall find at last a fitting end to your lack of grace you shall never again see your beautiful face oh wow and so i think i have this conscious memory of a child being like who's that like that guy with that voice uh-huh. that's doing this crazy laugh. And, yeah, yeah. And I think that was my first introduction because he does that one and he also narrates The Boy Who Left Home to find out about the Shivers, uh, which are two episodes of Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. And my babysitter, oh, I have it right there. Um, my babysitter as a kid. Uh, Gavin had, literally has Fairy Tale Theater, like a right, DVD box set right here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're watching it after. <laughs> Mama didn't raise no fool. Um, and uh, my babysitter had the entire VHS collection. And mm. I watch it all the time as a kid. And I genuinely think that was maybe my first introduction. Maybe after that was probably The Great Mouse Detective yep. as Radigan, um, which was, if you guys remember last week's episode, right before the Disney Renaissance. Yeah, um, right before it yeah, kind of yeah. kicked it off. I mean, and that's the other thing. Like, so I said who, not knowing that I have, it, no matter who you are, you have experienced Vincent Price. Right. Um, like, literally, if you've heard Thriller. Yes. I mean, and so... Uh, we will talk about Thriller. And so, my ignorance, I think, probably um, is not unique. He has the most distinct voice. I, I mean, I can't imagine existing without having heard his laugh before. Right. Also, if we talked about this during our Tim Burton episode. If you've seen Edward Scissorhands, what's the word I'm trying to He's look the up? inventor. The inventor who, makes who made yeah. Edward Scissorhands. That little figure up there. There he is. <laughs> Vincent is all around us yeah. right now. <laughs> Even if you do not know all of his film work and why he was so famous, you have probably experienced him. And so I will say it was very interesting to go back and um, kind of see uh, what why he be- he kind of became the person he is, and he is such an icon. Before we move into a rewind, I do want to touch on one thing. Uh, I did I did a ton of research for this episode, including reading his daughter Victoria Price's book, which is maybe the most thorough biography I've ever read. It started with his great grandfather and Holy went from shit. there. And I was like, I don't need all this, but okay, okay. Victoria, yeah. But it's it's very good, and also Vincent wrote everything down she said she would find you know papers that had fallen behind desks like diaries that you know every thought of every day so he 
basically chronicled his entire life for her. In the book, Vincent Price, A Daughter's Biography, she talks about Vincent Price's acting style and she relates it through Susan Sontag's essay on camp. Yes. And I so I just want to read just a tiny bit of this. In camp, she wrote, Indeed, the essence of camp is its love of the unnatural, of artifice and exaggeration. As a taste in persons, camp responds particularly to the marketedly attenuated and to the strongly exaggerated. Camp is the consistently aesthetic experience of the world. It incarnates a victory of style over content, aesthetics over morality, of irony over tragedy. Camp taste is, above all, a mode of enjoyment of appreciation. And if you are to talk about Vincent Price's acting style, I think that's the perfect encapsulation of it. There's everything that he does, every performance he gives, there's a firm tongue implanted in the cheek he's a boy who grew up with money but still saw himself as an everyman so there's always an aspect of a everyday person pretending to be somebody they're not right and i think that's a good place to start with vincent bryce so why don't we get into our rewind Vincent Price was born on May 27th, 1911 in St. Louis, Missouri. He's the youngest of four children. His father, Vincent Leonard Price Sr., was the president of the National Candy Company. So, money. Wait, National Candy Company? Correct. And what's interesting about that is, you know, Vincent Price is born in 1911, pre-Depression. But one of the few things that doesn't lose any money during the Depression is candy. Money bitches. Exactly. His mother is Marguerite Cobb Price. And um, he was an unplanned baby. Mm. They had him kind of later in life. And because of this, Vincent Price spent a large portion of his life kind of thinking that his mom hated him. Um, and it's not that she showed him this. It was just a guilt that he felt because he felt like he took away a portion of her life that she shouldn't have, that she shouldn't have been raising a child. Which is really funny because his three other siblings were basically like, nah, son, you are the favorite because you're the baby. Yeah. Um, Classic. Exactly. Uh, I do want to mention real quick, uh, his grandfather, Vincent Clarence Price, who invented Dr. Price's baking powder. This was the first cream of tartar based baking powder. That's what started the family. Not the cream of tartar baking powder. No, shocking. Um, It's funny, too, because up until that point in their life, in the Price's lives... None of them have been good with money. Mm. And Victoria talks about this a lot in the book about how prices, they're all very good at making bad money choices. And because of this, this, this guilt weighed on Vincent Price for his entire life and made him kind of cheap. He was always quick to give friends money, but if he could wear the cheapest thing he could find, if he could find a way to make things not cost as much. He was always down to do that. And because of that, he was always working. And I mentioned that a little bit in the preamble. At 12 years old, he discovered a love of art. Um, at a, a sale, he found a Rembrandt etching, uh, you know, as one does, right. just a Rembrandt etching in St. Louis, Missouri. And he paid $37.50 for it. Now, he didn't have that money, he had to do an installment. It took him three years to pay he off. He did lay away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had $12.50 in my pocket, and he let me pay the rest of it over three years. What's it worth now? Oh, it's worth about a couple of thousand. It was an etching, you know, but I, I was kind of pleased with it. I loved it. I still have it. But if you think about it, 12 years old, he's already starting to be conscious of, like, these are the things I like. Yeah. And 
he took him three years until he was 15 to pay off this one etching. What the fuck? When you're 12 years old, like I, I was like, um, I like this Lego set. <laughs> and, and so art becomes a lifelong passion for him. Uh, he attended the St. Louis Country Day School and Milford Academy in Milford, Connecticut. In 1933, he graduated with a degree in English and a minor in art history from Yale. And then he taught for a year. He decided, he's like, I want to give back. I want to, you know, somehow get art. And he taught English for a year. He was just, like, not really into school. <laughs> like, he was just, like, palling around, joshing with the bros. Yeah. Uh, at Yale, as one does. Uh and I guess after um, he graduated, he was just kind of like unsure what he wanted to do. And so that's how he ended up teaching. Absolutely. And also during his... Was it in Hudson? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also during... Good good memory. <laughs> I'm crazy like that. Um, also during that time, prior to when he was in school, he took his first trip abroad to Europe. And he yeah. kind of fell in love with Europe. Specifically Rome, but a lot of different places. Is he Lisa McGuire? Yeah, he is Lizzie McGuire. He absolutely is. Oh my god! After teaching for a year, he decides, no, I I love art. I love art so much. I'm going to study it. And he goes. He gets into the Courtauld Institute of Art in London, which is hoity-toity. Mm-hmm. It's only been around for a couple years, and it's like a big fucking deal. I I, uh, I studied art here at the Courtauld Institute in London, and I've sort of kept it up all my life, and I love it. Every time I get a chance, I go to the British Museum. I see if you've stolen any new things from other countries. And he was going to get his master's degree in fine arts. And at first he's all like, this is the shit. Everybody knows their art. It's great. And then slowly he's like, this is not the shit. Art people are stuck up. I do not like this. And this is not what I want. Um, but he starts befriending a lot of uh, theater people. Uh-oh. Wink, wink, wink. Gays. Gays. Um, and Reader, it was gays. It was gays. Um, and so he's drawn to the theater. Uh, he starts appearing on stage professionally for the first time in 1934. In 35, he starts performing with Orson Welles' Mercury Theater. And actually, he realizes he doesn't want to do like the Orson Welles' style thing either, because he hates what a megalomaniac Orson Welles is. <laughs> and he says some very nice things about Orson Welles, but he's kind of like, this guy is nuts. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he stops doing that, but he, he gets his first big, huge role as Prince Albert in a 1936 production of Lawrence Hausman's Victoria Regina. And he stars opposite Helen Hayes. Yeah, and he, if you look a picture of him up at oh, the time, good. he is hot. Yeah. Goodness. He was like 6'4". Oh, yeah. Cheeks. And, and like, yeah, just, I mean. Svelte. It's, and it's hard to describe what is sexy about Vincent Price. Yeah. But it but it is. It's there. He's got, it, he's got like what I would say a long face. Yes. But his, I don't know, he carries it so well. And there's something very youthful about him. He retains that throughout his entire life. Yeah. Um, even when he's very old. So, uh, he does this role as Prince Albert. So the crazy thing is, is you're not allowed to perform, uh, plays about, uh, the royalty in England at the time. Oh. Due to laws. But it was a private club throwing it, not a public theater. So that's how they got around it. On top of that, a lot of British actors were scared of doing it due to fear of retaliation. And so this director had to cast an American, and he begins lying to people that Vincent Price is this young British actor. He's up and coming. Yeah, absolutely. Play is a hit. Right. Plays for a good long while. Then the play goes to Broadway in America. I read, or like I saw that, they were on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah. And like, this is his first thing he's done. Yeah. And he's 
20, what, 24, 20, yeah. like something crazy. Oh, casual. The, um, see and- what happens when you're hot. <laughs> and so this, this really skyrockets him. He does a lot of theater. You know, it's interesting. One of the facts I found out about this, that I did not know Broadway used to be closed during the summer because, you know, it wasn't invented yet. Air conditioning. Oh, uh, fair. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. Um, Some so of those theaters are not comfortable. Oh, no, not at all. Uh, but he leaves uh, Victoria Regina after about a year. Uh, and he kind of considers it a mistake because he doesn't get any jobs right away. And it was a really good job. And every, every review was really great. But things start to pick up. You know, he ends up in the original production of Angel Street, which, uh, then goes on to become a movie that's filmed twice. That's a little film called Gaslight. Ever heard of it? Yeah. And if you live in this day and age, you hear the phrase gaslighting a lot comes from that. And Vincent Price has always been sort of like, oh, shit, I should have been in that movie. Needless to say, he starts getting film offers. And the first couple of years, he turns them down. In fact, famously, one studio offered him something around the lines of $1.5 million for a five-year contract. Wow. And that was a ton of money back then. Uh, it's the 30s. But you have to understand, the thing that Vincent Price feared the most as an actor was becoming a leading man. Mm. And this is what sets him apart from a lot of the other actors from the time. Vincent Price was more interested in playing the interesting roles. He wanted to be the secondary character, the one that can make him laugh. The one He didn't want to be stuck playing all these romantic leads. And that really seemed like what the studios wanted of him. And you see that a little bit in his, his earlier work. In 1938, he makes his screen debut. Mind you, this is just four years after his stage debut, two years after his big breakthrough stage debut. He ends up in a film called Sir Deluxe. I saw it. Okay. It's not great. Great. Yeah. Sexual politics, real bad. Mm, Well, not surprised. Yeah. You see, ever since I was a kid, I've been practically surrounded by women. A bunch of elderly aunts. Oh, they're nice people, all right, but, well, they just couldn't let me alone. Giving me sort of a phobia about being bossed. That's what I liked about you right away. You struck me as being little and sort of helpless. Well, you haven't known me very long. Oh, but I knew right away that you weren't the bossy type. He plays Joseph Smith in a movie version of Brigham Young. He plays a very small role in the movie Wilson, which is a biopic of of President Wilson. He's the Kingdom Song of Bernadette, where he plays Bernadette's prosecutor. And really, his first foray into horror is taking a smallish it's not terribly small but it's it's definitely a secondary lead role in the boris karloff film tower of london which is kind of a super bastardization of richard iii but that starred boris karloff and basil rathbone and they both of them knowing that this was like his second or third film uh teased him mercilessly um and he he became really good friends with them but there's a scene a drinking contest he has with richard the third right before vincent price's character dies and they were drinking wine and in it they used flat coca-cola and vincent price drank so much he got sick the next morning he showed up and sitting on his chair was a case of coca-cola Bought by Boris Karloff and Basil Rathbone. Just some bros being bros. Just some bros being bros. Um, so he does that. He does uh, The Invisible Man Returns, which we talked about in our Universal Studios. Uh, it's the sequel to The Invisible Man. Doesn't really care over the plot lines from that. He actually ends up uh, reprising that role in 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, just as a quick vocal cameo at the end, which is 
very funny. He spends sort of these years doing these, these character roles, the roles that he wants to do that aren't, um, right, you know, right up front. So it's really funny because his first lead isn't until 1950. Which is a full a decade. Yeah. It's 12 years after he makes his screen debut. Uh, he plays James Addison Rivas in the biopic, The Baron of Arizona. Um, it is not a horror movie. And it's interesting that once again, horror movies have become what he's known for. But this early part of his career, he's, you know, he'd only done two horror movies. Can we also say that at the beginning, his voice was not yet the voice? No, not know. at all. Because. His voice goes through a really um, intense transformation that I think he would like use, like when when he was playing. Like at, I I saw a scene from that. What was the first movie? It was like Service Service Deluxe. Service Deluxe. He sounds like a very Cary Grant type of just like yeah straightforward dude. And then as you get like into more creepier things, and even later in his career, certainly when he's playing someone British, it transforms into that kind of transatlantic. Um, godlike, you know, uh, it's, it's weirdly, it's weirdly higher pitched, yeah. but then it's also like, I don't, it's, it's, it's staccato and like, but it, it's almost like what sarcasm sounds like, you know, like <laughs> everything, yeah. I mean, especially when he's playing a, com- a comedic role or he's like trying to be cutting. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's funny that. I, w- I wish I knew, like, when or how or what, like, pushed him to, like, really push himself to kind of uh, find this specific voice. The voice that would define his career. But also, in the same year that he stars in The Baron of Arizona, he stars in one of his personal favorite performances ever, which is uh, as Burnbridge Waters in Champagne for Caesar, and which is a comedy which could not be further removed from a horror movie. Right. There's some bad, shitty sexual politics in that, but actually, I love I loved that movie. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. He also started taking up radio roles, and once again, you talk about his voice. I mean, obviously, that's, that's why he'd want to do it. Right. I wonder if it's... A, I mean, maybe... Doing radio, like, it calls for drama. It calls for just really over-the-top, uh, you know, uh, theatrical, like, the, the theatrical voice um, that, to really take the uh, listener there. Um, kind of like mine, you know? It's yeah. so theatrical. It is. It's really good. And yeah, it's, it's, like, amazing. it brings me to a place uh, and a, a da- time. A dark place. Yeah. <laughs> a dark gay place. In 1946, he does this very small film. It's about an hour. It's a B-movie. It's called Shock in which he plays a psychiatrist who kills his wife and his next-door neighbor witnesses the crime and goes into a state of shock. And he starts to be the doctor to take care of her. But it's really sort of the the role that patterns the villain for him for the rest of his life. Because one of the things he's always said about the villains is there has to be something likable about Mm. them. I think most people would tell you that they prefer the villain in a piece where there is obvious black-and-white hero villain. The villain is a much more sympathetic character. Boris and Basil both wrote in their autobiographies that people like the villain because he is a man who has failed. And really, villains do not think of themselves as villains. They just think of themselves as people who have been put upon. And when you see somebody who is a sensitive character who does something terrible, you have great sympathy for him. This model ends up being what he builds these these roles off. Well, all of his villains are also very stylish. You right. Know? He has such a um, specific look about himself, but also 
he had he like carried himself with such grace and you know every like every movement he made was so um like slinky and just uh regal you were kind of like okay this motherfucker knows what he's doing but i think that goes back to what susan sontag saying about camp oh is it's uh it's Absolutely. a heightened version of that it's what yeah. it's what people think is regal but if you were doing it in real life people would be like what's wrong with that guy yeah i after i mean so i watched as many as i could not yeah. nearly enough the word that kept coming up to my head was preposterous <laughs> I was like, these movies are all preposterous, and the the what would like push me towards liking it and disliking was just uh, how uh, you know, the vehicle which enable like I I I'm believing the preposterousness of this movie. Other ones, I was like, this is beyond the pale, and nothing could sell this to me. Uh, or like if if the camp really went there, and I was like, yes, I love it. If you're gonna be fucking crazy, just go all out and own it. And the the best thing about Vincent Price was that he never, like, plays it with any irony. It's always just, like, he is committed to being the full bonkers. So the 50s is really when he starts moving more towards the horror icon role. His first big, like, straight-on horror movie is 1953's House of Wax. He plays a homicidal sculptor. It's shot in 3D. It's a big deal. It makes tons of money. And... You know, you have to understand, this is almost 20 years into his career. His name starts being on the lips of teenagers. Yeah, I mean, Paris Hilton was really big after <laughs> it for being in that movie. Absolutely. That's how, a joke. How of dare you? The remake she's in. Um, also, this House of Wax is really fun. Um, and this is also the time when movies started... Like, we talk about now, like, uh, movies that are like 3D, IMAX, 4DX, blah, blah, blah. They were doing the same shit oh, yeah, back yeah. then. It's like in the middle of the movie, and he's like, step right up, come into the, the House of Wax. And I he's was like... a paddle ball right towards right you. Right towards you. And I was like, I bet you this was... And the people are like, oh my God, dude. <laughs> Ooh, get out of the way. Uh, that movie's fun. The next year, 1954, he stars in The Mad Magician. Same idea. I really like this movie, but same, same idea. 3D gimmick. He's a, a magician who like makes these crazy stunts and people want to take them away from him and he, he snaps. Um, and he's so good in it. Um, these he, movies also, because I think we, when we go further ahead, like the horror of this time is very different than the horror of like the yeah. 60s and 70s. And this is very, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess campy is a good word to describe it, but there's not really a lot of gore. No. It's it's like implied um, horror, you know, in House of Wax, like the burning of all the wax dolls and like you see bodies, but it's never like gruesome. And what's interesting too is that's the early part of the fifties. The later part of the fifties, there starts to be a real fear of nuclear you know, mm-hmm. radiation yep. and science and this distrust of that. And that leads into his next big horror forays, which is The Fly in 1958 mm-hmm. and the sequel Return of the Fly in 1959, which he did for money. <laughs> but then he, st- you know, he started working with William Castle in 1959. Um, and he did two movies for him. He did House on Haunted Hill, which yes. I think is an unbridled masterpiece. House on Haunted Hill, I remember, so, uh, again, preposterous. Yeah. I love a lot of his movies. They just have like acid vats lying around. <laughs> I was like, why is there another There acid? are so many acid vats. It's like, I just don't think that people have acid lying <laughs> around the way that he does. And not just like a little bit of acid, but no. like pools vats. that you could like throw someone in and then like their bodies would just come up and it's like a skeleton yeah ha- ha- house of haunted hill is 
preposterous, but very fun in a Scooby-Doo kind of way. Yes. If any of you will spend the next 12 hours in this house, I'll give you each $10,000. Or your next of kin, in case you don't survive. That was William Castle's whole bag. William Castle basically came up with concepts that would let the audience interact with the films. When the skeleton comes up out of the acid vat, they would fly a skeleton over the audience like it's the beginning of Scream 2. Can you imagine (laughs) being in theater and just like, like it's full on Spider-Man turn off the dark or some shit? Like... (laughs) The, um, and then it's coming soon, guys. Okay, absolutely. it is. Uh, the Tingler, released in the same year, is about a, a vicious little monster that, when it gets out, it attacks you and makes you tingle. And the in movie theaters, they would wire these seats up to shake because there's a scene where it gets loose in a movie theater, and Vincent Price breaks the fourth wall to warn you that it's loose in the movie theater. Film Forum in New York City did this actually no, a couple more God. than a couple years ago, and I went. And it was so fucking good. And they had, they only had a couple seats wired up and everybody knew where they were because they were, it was pretty obvious. Yeah. So we didn't sit in them, but the, the, they had like a person run into the theater with like the tingler attacking them and everything. It's, it's so much fun. The gimmicks are so much fun, but that's, I mean, that's really who William Castle was. In fact, uh, John Waters is a huge William Castle fan, huge Vincent Price fan. Uh, in 2013, he was the star of the month on TCM, and John Waters did a really beautiful, moving tribute to him. And he talks about the William Castle films. I'll never forget the scene in The Tingler when he says, Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream! Scream for your lives! It's here! The Tingler crosses the movie screen, and then you see the pitiful thing on the floor and the string pulling it. That shot made me like the movie even more. The crazy cheesiness of it all. Yet Vincent Price is so serious, he doesn't wink at the audience and say, this is beneath us, because it was never beneath us. It elevated us. During this time, he's also doing non-horror films. He's in, you know, The Ten Commandments Mm -hmm. in 1956. He plays Baca, the master builder, um, in some brown face role. It's in the 60s where he starts making his real success in horror movies, and that's the aforementioned collaborations with Roger Corman. Um, What's the company again? American International Pictures. Yeah. So I actually, an- another thing, uh, a couple years ago, got to go see Tomb of Lygia on the big screen, and fucking Roger Corman was there to introduce it, as well as, and I can't think of her name, sorry, the wo- the main woman in Tomb of Lygia. And they mm-hmm. talked about going to England to film it because Tomb of Lygia was one of the later of the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. And so, therefore, they were actually given money to shoot on location because the first, like, four or five were just completely in studio. Wow. And so they went to England to shoot it and just they talked about how, like, how rainy and damp and terrible it was because <laughs> they were basically, like, shooting in ruins of castles. and um, but... So we went to England. It was awful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> His very first one was House of Usher in 1960. It earned $2 million at the box office, which is a huge deal. As I've said, sounds of any degree whatsoever inspire me with terror. That's why your servant asked me to remove my boots. Yes. And even so, I could hear you coming. Every footstep, every rustle of your clothes, I could hear your horse approaching. Hear the clatter of its hooves across the courtyard, your knock... The grating of the door bolt was like a sword stroke to my ears. I can hear the scratch of rat claws within the stone wall. And that ser- seriously was just a snowball effect. 
The Pit and the Pendulum, 61, Tales of Terror, 62, Comedy of Terror, 63, The Raven, 63, Mask of the Red Death in 64, and Tomb of Lygia in 64. So that is an incredible uh, work output. Absolutely. And it's over the course of four years. Yeah. And people are expecting this performance from him now. You know, people go like, oh, yeah, Vincent Price, he's doing, you know, this kind of... uh, otherworldly spooky mysterious character um and what i like though is like the movies sometimes play with the formula where it's he he always presents as this mysterious kind of scary guy but then they'll like pull the rug from out under you and like no he's just a regular dude he's not the killer right and that's what and one of the things i love about the the edgar Allan poe adaptations is i think people look at vincent price and kind of think like oh he's samey samey but he's doing a lot of weird, interesting things. I love the performance in House of Usher. But then you have things like uh, The Raven and Comedy of Terrors, where he's playing these, like, super hammy... That's... I mean, I was thinking... So, here's the thing also. So, I am famously not a spooky bitch. Um, a lot of these movies are very much more than that. They're yeah. not... And, and I would say barely spooky, you know, like it's there. A lot of these are kid friendly. Um, The Raven is literally about wizards. I mean, you would never think that. Right. Like Roger Corbin fully was like, okay, how can we fit in the Raven into this story? Like the Raven isn't even like a main character, whatever. Um, Or he is, but not really. Yeah. Uh, It's hard to describe. Yeah. Watch the Raven. Watch the Raven. Uh, (laughs) If if mostly only like for the amazing wizard duel at the end. Yeah. um, It's, oh my God. It's, it's Vincent Price versus Boris Karloff and Boris Karloff's arthritis was so bad that he couldn't stand. So they do it. They did it in a chair. Yes. But it's really good. It is really good. Yeah. And uh and, and all the whole time I was thinking I was like kids could be watching this. This is like perfect like yeah. background movie like kind of fantasy stuff. They're not slashers. No. They're not like bloody messes with and, you know there's no like jump scare situations. It's full it's more mysterious. <laughs> more fantastical. On the other side of the coin, he's also starring in the adaptation of Last Man on Earth in 1964, which is the first adaptation of the Richard Matheson novel, which I Am Legend and uh, the Omega Man would later adapt. And even though it is the most faithful version to the book, it is uh, considered maybe one of the least entertaining because it's not a particularly well-made film. I liked it. I liked him. Whereas like I Am Legend is obviously like very entertaining and like is meant to be a blockbuster movie. Last Man on Earth felt very, like, inwardly. Yeah. And it felt sad and not as, like, needing to be bombastic. Uh, like, and, I mean, the first line of the movie is like, I guess it's another day. Another day to live through. Better get started. Yeah. And I was like, bitch, same. <laughs> Every time I wake up. Um, and he also does this movie called Witch Friend or General. Um, and you know, it's called Conqueror Worm in the US, and there's some edits to it. It's set during the English Civil War, and he's a witch hunter. Oh, I heard this one's kind of gruesome. It is gruesome. Um, and it's very good. And what's interesting is the director was very, very young, and they did not get along at all. And later when the movie came out, Vincent Price had to write him a letter of apology, basically being like, hey, I know we didn't get along, but whatever you did got this amazing performance out of me. And really, you know, I thank you because you clearly know what you're doing. What law demands, we shall satisfy. You will each be tied in a prescribed fashion and cast into the moat. Should you then sink, we will know that your confessions are false. 
If, on the other hand, you are seen to swim or float, then your confessions of witchcraft are proven beyond a doubt in the sight of God, and you will be withdrawn from the water and hanged by the neck until you are dead. His contract with AIP also kind of gets him to do these other roles, and the funny thing is, is that the horror roles are the successful stuff. Right. During this time, he also does Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine and its sequel, Dr. Goldfoot and the Girl Bombs, which are these, like, spy spoof comedies where he plays a mad scientist, and they're all about, like, girls dancing uh-huh, and jiggling. Uh-huh. And also at this time, AIP's trying to capture the young audience by making the beach films. And so he's in the original Annette Funicello, Frankie Valli, Beach Party, where he plays the man that runs the hangout that they all hang out at, and <laughs> (laughs) he mostly wears just a wide brim hat and looks down but he has one line in the movie and it's a fucking showstopper the pit bring me my pendulum kiddies I feel like swinging the other thing that he's doing is TV and that was kind of controversial at the time because a lot of celebrities thought yeah they would never exactly don't do TV it's a death knell and Vincent Price thought one money Mm -hmm. and two it keeps my name on people's lips. Yeah. And it's uh, to me, that's so smart. You know, he guest stars on The Man from Uncle, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Batman. Yeah. And he plays Egghead? Yes. And he's only in two episodes, but people remember him. Hi, Eggie baby. Please. It's Mr. Egghead before other people, not Eggie baby. <laughs> and what's interesting about that, and I'm going to get to his personal life at the end, but at this time, he has his daughter, Victoria, and the the reason he's picking these TV shows is these are TV shows Victoria Price watches. Oh, yeah. And also, I'm sure it's like easier to do stuff in LA and oh, TV than like going off to shoot but, movies. But like, she was his connection to yeah. the youths. Wasn't he also later in like the Brady Bunch? Yeah, he's been everywhere, guys. Okay, <laughs> and that would have been the '60s as well. So yeah, he starts slowing down in the '70s, but I. Do you think that's where maybe some of the best work starts happening? He starts hosting a mystery series for BBC Radio called The Price of Fear. And that lasts for a pretty long time. In 71, he does The Abominable Dr. Fives. And the very next year, he does Dr. Fives Rises Again, Theater of Blood in 73. You know, so he's kind of churning these things out to kind of keep himself in in the pop culture for kids, he starts deciding to do some things that m- maybe other actors wouldn't have done. But because his name is so linked to horror at this point, some of it seems pretty natural. And he does voiceover for Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare in 1975 and appears in the corresponding TV special, Alice Cooper the Nightmare. Um, and that sort of gets a certain class of kids yeah. back into... Vincent Price. Yeah. Um, he also guest stars on The Muppet Show in the first season finale. Doesn't he? And he's like, he plays a vampire or? Yeah, he or- does. And one of them, there's this famous sketch of Kermit biting his neck. He also sings Carol King's You've Got a Friend, mm-hmm. which is the theme song to Gilmore Girls. Uh. Winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you have to do is call. And I'll be there. Yes, he will. <laughs> well, so, guys, hello, icon. And because he wants to continue to work, he takes a job doing this one-man show playing Oscar Wilde, and it's this play called Diversions and Delights. Wait, he is old by this point. Yeah. He is in his 60s, 70s? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, because go ahead. I mean, I, I remember re- hearing about this. He plays Oscar Wilde for like 800 performances. Yeah. And the, and the tour is, it's set at a Parisian theater on the night about one year before Wilde's death. So he's playing an older Wilde as well. He didn't, he was a little concerned about taking the role at first, but then he realized, you know, fuck it. You know, why, why do I care? He's um, old and married. Right. Um, <laughs> on top of that, uh, you know, because he's, he's touring this very queer production around the U.S., which does incredibly well. The only place it doesn't do great is New York City, but then like Roundabout ends up doing it with him anyways. So yeah, I mean, he was on tour like all across the U.S. I- Absolutely. Can you imagine? Yeah. No one does that anymore. And his daughter would say, like, he would take autographs from anyone. They would go out to dinner, and he would let people interrupt him at dinner. This one guy saw my dad and came in and asked for an autograph. And pretty soon, there was a line going out the door of people asking for an autograph. It took him 40 minutes to sign those autographs, sign them, talk to people, connect with people, he never said no. He never looked down at his plate and said, can I finish my meal first before it gets cold? He never said no. He always was generous. But because he's doing this kind of queer tour, touring it around the nation, people stop and ask him things. At the time, for those of you who don't know, for all you baby gays out there, mm-hmm. there was this woman named Anita Bryant. Oh, that bitch. Yeah, awful. That should be your um, first thought hearing yes, that name. Absolutely. If you hear Anita Bryant, be like, oh, oh that her. bitch. Really quick summary of what the fuck she was doing. She was basically saying that gays are the fucking worst and trying to pass a law in Florida that could fire, like trying to expose gays working and fire you for being gay. Um, and that passed. It was in Miami, I believe. And that passed. And, you know, so gay organizations in other cities were trying to like start, um, organizing to fight these bills because that bill would end up traveling across America, all these other conservative, uh, movements um, and organizations were bringing it to their state, and it famously um, hit California. Yeah, um, and there was a big to do, but yeah, and she got pied in the face. Uh, um, so all these media people would ask Vincent Price about Anita Bryant and what she would think of this show, and his canned response, and I love this because he was very quick witted, was always. Uh, Oscar Wilde already wrote a play about her. It's called A Woman of No Importance. Ah! <laughs> um, and I love this. And I love how... An ally. Yeah. I love how absolutely... You know, the the thing that I don't think he's given enough credit for is, is being insanely quick-witted in his real life and not really suffering fools. As I mentioned, you know, he, he was very generous when it came to his friends, but also he didn't, he didn't give a fuck what people thought about him. Famously, when he made Dr. Fives Rise Again, he found out American International Pictures was thinking about replacing him with Robert Quarry as their main horror movie star. Wow. Robert Quarry was starring in this film with him. So the next morning, during makeup, Robert Query was singing as they're putting on makeup, and he turned to Vincent and he was like, Bet you didn't know I was a singer too, Vincent. And Vincent responded with, Well, you sure as fuck can't act. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. I mean, there's lots of stories of this. Uh when when you make Cry Did I read? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. When when they made Cry of the Banshee, they had a a ten year anniversary uh, Vincent Price party. But at that point, he was so removed from American International Pictures that he didn't want to be there. So he told them he wasn't coming, and they were like, "You have to come. You're the guest of honor." So he finally shows up, but he was told Samuel Arkoff, who produced all these pictures, was going to be there and didn't want to be seen with him. 
They get to the time to cut the cake. They realize there's no knife around, and he instantly responds with, why don't you cut it using the knife that's in my back? (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, first of all, that's maybe your best impression you've ever done. I want you to know. Uh, he sounds just like such a fun, fun person to be around. Yeah. Uh, this biography that I saw of him, um, all these older actresses would just say, you know, he was so serious and spooky on set. And at once they hit cut, he was just so fun, had this, the nastiest, quickest sense of humor. Out comes this absolutely hysterical, funny man. He was sarcastic and brittle and wonderful. When Vincent was working, he was serious, but it would flip to the other side very quickly and there would be a joke or a a giggle. He always knew. And that's the thing that's like when movies today that um, don't know what they are, yeah. and you're, and you, you can sense that you're like, they don't know that this is supposed to be, you know, campy or right. funny, or he, and it feels like he always knew. He always knew that he, what he was doing was preposterous. Absolutely. In the eighties, you know, he starts to do less work. In eighty two, he gets a, a letter from a person at Disney, being like, "There's a young animator. He's made this short. He really wants you to voice it." And he goes and meets with Tim Burton and he decides, yes, this guy is a fan. Mm-hmm. And he does the short Vincent. We played a clip of it during the Tim Burton episode. Yeah. I, I don't know if we need to say any more. You can find it on YouTube. I, I, but that is also like, imagine you are a young person trying to create art and you love a, an icon and, and you, you're making a movie inspired by this person and you or someone in your office reaches out. And they not only respond, most, I think most celebrities would probably be like, thanks for being a fan. Right. Uh, like a form letter. Like, yeah, something that's very like, whatever. But to actually respond and then to do the thing and and not only do the thing, but the thing that would launch Tim Burton's career. Yeah. That's fucking wild. And, and it's kind of so like, that's like Rihanna paying your bills level right. shit, Absolutely. you know? So Rihanna, Vincent Price, same thing. Um, Also in 82, he provides the spoken word sequence um, in the Michael Jackson song Thriller. Mm -hmm. Um, Michael Jackson told him the entire album was inspired by him. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize y'all's neighborhood. Vincent Price was always getting into financial follies because that's who he was and who the prices are, as I mentioned up front. He never signed a deal that would give him royalties in perpetuity and therefore never received the amount of compensation he believed. When Michael Jackson found this out, he sent three members of his entourage to his house. Uh, Latoya. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Janet. Yeah. Uh, she was busy that day. Uh, Jermaine. Um, but uh, to give him... Two platinum thriller records and one gold thriller record personalized to him. This only made him matter. Wow. He was like, what the fuck? When the move was made to obtain payment for Vincent for the video usage, his agent was referred to a small print in the recording contract where a video clause was buried and further payment was refused point blank. Wow. So this made him even angrier. Fucking auctions the gold record off for charity. Absolutely. Good for him. And then... Later, held this grudge for so long when it was reported, and this is a quote from Victoria Price's book. It's also my favorite Vincent Price's anecdote. I tell it all the time. Okay. 
when it was reported that Michael Jackson uh, had made a multi-million dollar payment in respect of charges of his possible misconduct with a young boy, Vincent channeled the ill feelings about his own mistreatment into a joke. All I can say is that Michael Jackson fucked me, and I didn't get paid for it. Uh, I love him so much. Vincent Price rose from the dead <laughs> to watch the AP- HBO special yeah, he's like, and say that joke. Yeah. He's like, leaving Neverland. <laughs> in the later 80s, he appears in the House of Long Shadows with Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and John Carradine. What's cool about this is they've been in a lot of movies together. They circled each other's orbit a lot, but almost never all at the same time. This movie's not great, but it's a lot of fun seeing these four actors interacts with each other. Also stars Desi Arnaz Jr., not an actor. And he does the voice of Radigan in 1986's Great Mouse Detective. Uh, he hosted PBS's TV show Mystery from 1981 to 1989. Good evening, and welcome to a very special night of mystery. I'm Vincent Price. In 1985, he ended up providing the voice talent for the Hanna-Barbera series The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo as the mysterious Vincent Van Gogh. Oh, yeah, it's one of my favorite Scooby-Doo series and does fairy tale theater from there and really decides to kind of move away from horror movies. He does this movie called Monster Club in the early 80s and it's him and it's John Carradine and it's an anthology film so they're only in the wraparound portion. He gives this amazing monologue about how man is the worst monster of all. They invented guns and tanks and bombs and aeroplanes and extermination camps and poison gas and daggers and swords and bayonets and booby traps and atomic bombs and flying missiles, submarines, warships, aircraft carriers and motor cars. They have even perfected a process whereby they can spread a lethal disease on any part of this planet. Not to say anything about nuclear power. (laughs) It's his, his final bow. But what's funny is nobody really makes a big deal out of it. His next movie that he does is The Whales of August, which stars Betty Davis, Lillian Gish, and Anne Southern. This comes in 87. They're all incredibly old. Betty Davis had already suffered two strokes, couldn't really move the left side of her body. Uh, I actually just watched it today. I'd been putting it off because I knew it would make me sad. He gives a really amazing performance, and he gets nominated for his only, like, legitimate award in his entire career when he gets nominated for a Best Supporting Actor at the Independent Spirit Awards. Wow. Uh, That movie doesn't do much here in America. It plays Japan for an entire year. Wow. Huh. And it's just a movie about old women. And Vincent Price. And Vincent Price. (laughs) He plays a Russian emigre. What if he also was an old woman? (laughs) He was also an old woman. (laughs) I would love that. In 89, he received a star on the St. Louis Walk of Fame, which I love. He has a star on the real Walk of Fame, but I love the fact that his hometown would, would, you know, do something nice for him. And in 1990, he does Edward Scissorhands uh, for Tim Burton. (laughs) And it really is such a good... It always makes me sad every time I see him when he dies and Edward Scissorhands. But... You know, it's really done as a celebration. It's done as a, as a way to celebrate his life. He becomes really good friends with Tim Burton. He becomes, you know, Johnny Depp then was not the Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp that we know now. He becomes really good friends with Johnny Depp, becomes really good friends with Winona Ryder. They go to parties together and like he just regales them with stories so of old fucking Hollywood. Cool. Yeah. And that's sort of the end of his career. I, I'll 
talk about his death in a moment, but I want to get to the personal stuff because I've mostly been avoiding it. Talks about his love of art. One of the things that uh, he did that I think is so great that in 1957, him and his second wife, Mary Grant Price, donated 90 pieces of their private collection and a large amount of money to establish the Vincent Price Art Museum at East Los Angeles College in Monterey Park, California. It was the first teaching art collection owned by a community college in the United States. Yeah. Um, they donated more than 2,000 pieces. The collection contains over 9,000 pieces and has been valued at an excess of $5 million. It still exists to this day. Yeah. Um, I was actually just on the website. The current exhibits sound amazing. It is currently all indigenous and Mexican artists. Very fucking cool. Yeah. I'm fascinated by American art, you know, because I don't think a lot of people think there is anything called American art. As a matter of fact, I've just been invited to go to uh, Poland. We're going to take a lot of American Indian art over there because they love anything to do with the West. And I have a great big painting called The Death of Sitting Bull. Yeah. Done by an eyewitness, uh, an Indian. Is that right? So I'm going to take it over there and lend it to them and to the Russians. And I, I saw that he had done that. And in his late years, he would frequently visit the museum, would frequently visit and um, talk to students there. And it's just like, God, you know, uh, I don't know, without getting too cheesy and schmaltzy, like, he didn't choose Yale. Right. He didn't choose, you know, some snoot. He chose East Los Angeles College. Yeah. Uh, and that just, like, really, I don't know, shows, like, what kind of guy he was, the heart. I mean, fuck. It's just, it's really fucking cool. I mean, that, it, it means and matters more that he chose there than it would, if it would have been, like, at Stanford or whatever, you Absol- know? Absolutely. Also, and this is one of my favorite things. He ended up working as an art consultant for Sears and Roebuck. Oh, and he yeah, do- yeah, He does yeah. this from 62 to 71. Sears offered the Vincent Price collection of fine art, selling about 50,000 art prints to the general public. Now, perhaps some of you are wondering what I'm doing carrying around a stepladder. Well, let me assure you, I was hanging pictures and not people. But there may be some others of you who know that I have another interest besides movies. And that's an interest in fine arts. And some of you may have read in the papers that Sears is starting a, a department, a section of fine arts. Works which Price selected or commissioned for the collection included works by Rembrandt, Pablo Picasso, and Salvador Dali. They said one of the years he traveled the globe just collecting artwork. He ended up spending something like $33 million because they were just footing the bill. I bought 55,000 works of art in about three years all over the world. It was wonderful. It was like being a secondhand millionaire, spending somebody else's money. (laughs) He really believed that public access to fine art was one of the most important things to him. Uh, his daughter, Victoria, said of him that he saw the Sears deal as an opportunity to put his populist beliefs into practice and bring art to the American public. Yeah, and so you could, like, call in and, like, buy prints. Actual pieces, yeah, prints of actual pieces of art. There was even one of the most expensive ones was a, was a Dali that, like, you could buy the original. You could buy the original? Yeah. Casual. Sears. Uh, rest in peace. Yeah. His other love, besides art, was food. Food? Yeah. And he was an actual gourmet cook. He traveled the globe collecting recipes 
and and really implementing them, learning to cook, learning to make everything. And one of the things it was is like he was never good at art, like he wasn't a painter. Yeah. And so this was a way he could channel that creative energy besides acting into something he loved. With his second wife, Mary, they wrote four cookbooks, A Treasury of Great Recipes, which we have out there. Wow. Um, an original printing from 1965. Uh, the Mary and Vincent Price present a national treasury of cookery. Mary and Vincent Price's Come Into the Kitchen Cookbook, A Collector's Treasury of America's Great Recipes, and Cooking Price-Wise with Vincent Price. Wow. He ended up having all of these recipes, and the original Treasury of Great Recipes was reprinted, I want to say, in 2014, so you can find copies of it now. But for a long time, these kind of fell by the wayside. In 71, Price hosted his own cooking program on British TV called Cooking Price-Wise. And then famously, and this is one of my favorite things, it's such a great clip, on November 21st of 1975, on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, he demonstrated how to poach a fish in a dishwasher. Okay, well... (laughs) Why, why do you use a dishwasher? Just to, uh... Because it steams and it heats, and fish is one of the few things. You couldn't do, you know, meat or anything well, like that in it. But so the... fish cooks in only a very short time, and it really is kind of beautiful. Gourmet cook! I was like, where could this possibly be going? Yeah, so he was very famous for his love of food. So, ladies and gentlemen, please go out, get yourself a fish, put it in your dishwasher. You put it in a dish in your dishwasher first, you steam it. Steam it. You're poaching. Oh. Someone watched their Bon Appetit video today. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of his personal life, Price married three times. His first marriage was from 1938 to former actress Edith Barrett. And they had one son, um, a poet and columnist named Vincent Barrett Price. He went by Barrett. And they divorced in 48. So they had a good 10-year marriage. Uh, Price married Mary Grant in 49. And they had the daughter, Victoria Price, who's named after the play Victoria Regina. Mm. Um, and she was born in April 27th, 1962. So at this point, her brother was married and having a kid of his own. Wow. That marriage lasted until 1973. They were married a long while. Yeah, they were married a real long while. He goes and he does the movie Theater of Blood mm-hmm. in England. And Diana Rigg, mm-hmm. not, not her fault, not her fault, introduces him to Coral Brown, mm-hmm. who is an actress... Um, and they begin having an affair. Is she Australian? Yes. Mm-hmm. And she's a little scandalous. She's famously sleeps around with a lot of men. Like, um, she was, but she was like a classic Shakespearean actress. Um, she was a very shrewd woman. She liked her friends. She did not like other, other people's friends. She really pushed him away from a lot of his friendships. And he was a very personal, personable guy. He did, however, inherit a lot of her friends, like Roddy McDowell and Joan Rivers, and they became lifelong friends. But unfortunately, all of his other friendships suffered, including his friendship with Diana Rigg, who fucking introduced them. Wow. And the thing is, Diana Rigg has said many times, I did not break up his marriage. I thought he was a single person. He never spoke about his wife and daughter. Wow. Yeah. And so... Escándalo. Yeah. A little shady on that front. Um, also, what's really sad is there's a great This Is Your Life that they did in the 1970s. Basically, Vincent Price has just admitted to his wife he had an affair and he wants a divorce. And she's expected to organize the This Is Your Life. Because oftentimes, This Is Your Life would contact your spouse yeah, yeah. in order to surprise you. And she's on it. And it's painful to watch if you know that their marriage is ending. Uh, we're very proud to be Vincent Price's family. 
Thank you, Mary. Coral Brown, he married her in 74. Um, The marriage lasted until her death in 91. Yeah, she died Um, of cancer. Yes. And actually, when she died, she also drove a wedge between him and his kids. Um, Basically wouldn't let him see his kids. And really, Victoria Price, really, her relationship with him suffered during that time period. When she died, they found a lethal cocktail of drugs hidden in an envelope in her closet. And that she had, like gathered over the years because she knew exactly what would be the thing that would kill her if she needed to go without like going in a painful way that's one of his movies what the fuck in terms of his political beliefs he was very much a democrat um as earlier i mean he grew up conservative with conservative parents and uh when he first went to Europe and he saw like the Hitler use, he was like, wow, this seems like a really interesting uniform thing. And then he found out, oh no, this man is a mass murderer. Right. And then he was like, oh shit. And flipped the switch. Yeah, and he met the theater gaze and exact- was like, never mind. Exactly. And one of his most famous, uh, PSAs was at the end of an episode of the saint, uh, recorded on July 30th, 1950. He denounced racial and religious prejudice. Ladies and gentlemen, poison doesn't always come in bottles. And it isn't always marked with the skull and crossbones of danger. Poison can take the form of words and phrases and acts. The venom of racial and religious hatred. Here in the United States, perhaps more than ever before, we must learn to recognize the poison of prejudice and to discover the antidote to its dangerous effects. Due to all of his art background, he was later appointed to the Indian Arts and Crafts Board under Dwight D. Eisenhower, which he thought was kind of surprising since he was such a Democrat. He stayed on that board for 15 years, the last five years he spent as the head of that board. He really thought it was important that indigenous art get out there because not enough people were talking about art by indigenous Americans. His daughter came out as a lesbian uh, later on. Yeah. Um, she later in life, he was very supportive. He was an honorary board member, a P flag, and among the first celebrities to appear in public service announcement discussing AIDS. I have not been able to find that PSA, but I have found people talking about that. Um, his, his daughter has also said that she is as close to as certain as she can be that her dad had physically intimate relationships with men. She says, everybody asks me, was your dad bisexual? Was he bisexual? And it was Roddy McDowell who said to me, you know, we didn't have any idea what bisexuality meant in that sense. And if we didn't know, then how can we know the answer to that question? To me, it's interesting because I've learned more about my dad's sexuality and more than I knew then about different things. I had the choice of what to reveal and what not to reveal. Since I didn't hear it from his mouth, I think that everything I hear comes with a measure of hearsay, right? But I would like to say something here because I might as well. I'm as close to as certain as I can that my dad had physically intimate relationships with men. I know for for 100% fact that my dad was completely loving and supportive of LGBT people. She also tells this story in the book about Coral Brown, who she was never close with, taking her out to lunch at one point and telling her that she thought her father was having an affair. Mm. And she said she learned more about their sexual relationship than she ever wanted to know. Um, later, uh, a couple years later, Coral got sick uh, and was in the hospital. And Vincent Price was al- basically allowed to see his daughter during this time. And he took her out to lunch and he told her about this relationship he 
um, had had with a younger man, this man who knew nothing about art and knew nothing about cooking. And Vincent Price found it refreshing to talk to him and to teach him about these things. And he said it was like an intellectual affair. It was an affair without any of the sex, but he could tell it was driving a wedge between him and Coral. And she asked him to let it go. And he let this friendship go. And it pained him to this day that he had lost this friend. Victoria Price says in the book, whose story am I to believe? Am I to believe my father's? Am I to believe Coral's? Coral was a prone exaggerator. She was, I was not as close to her. So probably the closer to the truth is my father's, but I will never know the truth to that story. Wow. So do we know if Vincent Price is actually bisexual? No. Yes. But yes, <laughs> exactly. And listen, we're not just doing queer people here, but I think it's important to to talk about that stuff because representation matters. Yeah. I mean, you cannot be a master of camp right. and not paint with all the colors of the wind, okay? Absolutely. At the age of 82, uh, Price was suffering from emphysema. He was a lifelong smoker, and he also had Parkinson's disease. He had rheumatoid arthritis, which he believed he could cure by kneading bread. I guess it does stave off some of the symptoms. Okay. I'll give him that. Okay. But, like, didn't didn't completely work out. A lot of this came to the head during the filming of Edward Scissorhands, and he couldn't work for long hours, and, you know, but he, he got the part that he needed. Uh, he eventually ended up cutting short his time with Mystery, which he'd been hosting since 81, and this is 89, remember. Um, and he kind of moved back from the spotlight coral dies in 91 and price just gets sicker after that victoria comes to help take care of him unfortunately she you know she goes to new york to try and talk about this art book that they're gonna do they're gonna write together and he says to her i could go at any time she gets the call that he is dying and she gets on the first plane from new york three years prior to that he goes on vacation with barrett his son to Hawaii. He wanted to go to Rome because he wanted to see Rome one last time before he died. He couldn't go. He was too sick. So they went to Hawaii anyways. As she's sitting on the tarmac, she tells this in the book, as she's sitting on the tarmac, she sees a plane take off, an Air Italia plane. And she thinks for a moment that that might, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional, that that is her father getting to see Rome one last time before he dies. And he dies while she's in the air. Wow. And yeah, I don't know. It's very silly for me. I just feel, I feel very emotional about Vincent Price. So at the age of 82, he passes away due to lung cancer, October 25th, 1993 at the UCLA Medical Center. He was cremated and his ashes are scattered off Point Doom in Malibu, California. Uh, he says he doesn't want a memorial right, service. Right. So what Victoria does is she throws a dinner and a gallery exhibition. Perfect. And I love that. And, yeah. and lots of people come and, you know, they, they share their stories and it, it's really beautiful. It's really sweet. Sign yeah. Up. He had such a full life. Um, he has like over a hundred film credits, right? Absolutely. Like, Even yeah. if he's just in a movie for a scene, like Beach Party. Yeah. And he gave so much to his community and to the world, really. I mean, you know, selling art, you know, working with the Indian Art Council, his impact on culture. Yeah. It's so great. It's, and it and it so far exceeds anything. I, like I said, a lot of people consider him master of horror. But it, it so exceeds that. Because there is 
if you bring it back to the camp, there is that style, there's that class, that heightened things. There's all, I think there's a lot of actors, you know, Jack Nicholson is in The Raven. It's one of his first roles. I don't think you would see in The Raven. He's the main, he's the main young guy. He's the like, you know, that scene where that's him. Yeah. 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 I am shooketh. I don't think the world has a Jack Nicholson type actor, such an, you know, an over the top presence. Without someone like Vincent Price, and I, I think that impact, be it through art, be it through film, be it through cooking, I don't know. I, I just think his he mattered. So why don't we move into our one-star reviews? One-star reviews. Okay, fine. Cool. Let's do it. This episode's not very spooky, guys. Sorry. It's not that spooky. Um, I feel nervous about these picks. Uh, I don't. He starred in some real clunkers, I'll be perfectly honest. I, I, I am under no illusion that every movie Vincent Price was in was a real winner. So, we mentioned this movie earlier. I'm just gonna say it. My one-star review is 1959's The Tingler. Ooh. I saw it last night. Okay. And... You didn't feel that tingle? I didn't feel the tingle. Like you said, directed by William Castle, who is known for his gimmicks. The Tingler is about a doctor, Dr. Warren... Chapin, Chapin, whatever, um, played by Vincent Price. And he... Incomparable. The incomparable. And he's studying fear, I guess. And he's like, what, you know, uh, uh, what makes people scream? And what is that? Uh, if I could only find that, um, take a picture of that last exact moment when someone screams, um, he discovers along with like an aide that there is a creature living inside each and every one of us. First, that fear causes the tingler to spread along the spinal column. And probably with those arm-like things between the vertebra, forces it to become arched and rigid. And you believe that screaming, or, or perhaps any sound the human in fear can make, de-energizes it, paralyzes it? Well, at least screaming seems to stop the tingler from bending the spinal column. Screaming may even dissolve it, or if it's a living organism, kill it. And these are things we have to find out. And it extends from, like, the bottom of your ass, essentially, or the top of your ass, and grows up, up on your spine. Um, and if you cannot express that fear through screaming, um, it grows so strong that it will snap your back, um, snap your spine with its jaws. Um, but screaming releases the fear and makes the tingler recess in your body. Uh, and so the whole idea is like, if what if you were so scared but you couldn't scream and you would die because of it? He meets a this guy's like wife is a deaf mute who he calls dumb, and I'm like, she is signing to you. She's clearly not dumb. But also in the movie, I don't think she's doing ASL. I kn- I took an ASL class yeah. in college, and I was like, she's not really doing Ooh, ASL. She's like handsing about. She's voguing. Um and. And so Vincent Price's character gets the right idea, like, oh, she can't, she has no vocal cords, and so she can't scream. So that's what the whole movie's about. But, like, this moment happens where he cuts his hand on um, a, a broken glass, and there's a, a drop of blood, and she faints because the fear is too much, and she couldn't scream because she thinks blood's too spooky-ooky. But then later in the movie, like, there's a full murderer in her house, and she's just kind of, like, wide-eyed about it. And I was like, bitch... <laughs> was the drop of blood scarier? Um, they end up cutting out the tingler from, I want to say it's her, spoiler alert. And it's like a centipede kind of, like a big centipede 
guy. and It is a big centipede thing. And it's like, it attacks people and it, and, and it, it's really, really goofy. And yeah, I, I think this the movie just doesn't really, uh, especially with the buildup of like, oh, the screaming, it's going to be so horrible. It's it's almost like this movie, thou doth protest too much. You know, like <laughs> if you didn't set it up so like big, I would have been like, oh, it's like a, another funny, goofy movie. But they tried to really sell it as this horrible thing. There's a moment where he takes like LSD or something and he's going through, he's trying to like, he's telling himself, don't scream, don't scream to try and like coax the, the tingler out of himself. And so what you get is like this silent part of the movie where Vincent Price is kind of just like wobbling about and it's beyond ridiculous. Like the preposterousness of this movie is above and beyond. Yeah. Uh, Do you think part of the reason why it's not great too is that he's sort of playing a straight man in it? I mean, like, like a nor- like a normal. There's nothing like extravagant about him. Well, it's, so I mean, it, it, yeah, they try and play like he's really in this for science, guys, right? But also, why? And and <laughs> like and like what the fuck for? Like, okay, so you scream and then it's fine, right? Like, there's the stakes feel aggressively low <laughs> at the end of the movie. It, um, they get, they, they talk to the audience and it's like, if you don't believe that there's a tingler inside all of us, try not screaming in the dark. And I'm like, I'm doing that right now. I'm like, <laughs> uh, and yeah. And I, and I wonder if it also just it doesn't help that without the gimmick of like being in the theater with like the things happening around you, it completely just like falls flat. I believe it. I've never seen it outside of the theater situation. It's a lot of fun when you're in the theater and there's like actual something trying to coax you to scream. Yeah. But if you're sitting at home, like I was sitting at home and I was, I mean, the only thing that's really cool is the movie is in black and white, except for one scene where there's blood coming out of uh, a sink. And then there's like a full um, tub full of blood. And this is, Essentially, they set up this deaf mute woman, right? So trying to scare, her to trying death. to scare her to death to get the tingler out. Um, and I thought, oh, that's really fucking cool and interesting. And I was like, and I bet you that took a lot of fucking work for them to figure out and do. But beyond that, that's my pick. Okay, so my pick is is from a bit later, but it it is just as equally bad. It is 1970s Cry of the Banshee. As okay. I mentioned before, this was Vincent Price's 10 year anniversary of working with AIP, American International Pictures. It is directed by Gordon Hessler, and it's it's like first of all, could not look cheaper. <laughs> L- literally like four sets, one of which is just like people badly like medieval dancing, like hands touching hands, mm-hmm. circling each other. Yes, ever after. Um yes. It's set in Elizabethan England, so it says. It revolves around a wicked magistrate who tries to kill all the members of a coven of witches. Vincent Price is the magistrate. Now also Cry of the Banshees an Edgar Allan Poe quote, but it's not a full a story. Did they so, just essentially like take these and just do whatever they wanted with them? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, the quote is from The Bells by Edgar Allan Poe. And, and they had bought the rights to all these, right? Uh, well, a lot or of them were, of... a lot of public domain. Yeah. So like you didn't really have to do much with them. Vincent Price is this lord. He's a magistrate and he provides other trials young woman, but he's like the head of this corrupt family. He has like a sadistic son. He's a sadist himself, like really just wants these witches to die in a horrible way. He has a young wife. Within the first two scenes, his his son has raped his young wife. And like and just amoral people. What is that in your hand, boy? Huh? Pipes? What's the matter? 
Didn't that witch of a mother of yours give you spells and charms to coax music from those heathen pipes? <laughs> Play! What about this young girl, huh? Do her feet have magic, huh? Dance! Play! My husband, please, I beg of you. Why, wife? Here we have the son and daughter of some sorceress, <laughs> and I'm damned if they shan't afford us some merriment. I guess you're supposed to be rooting against them, but also you guess. But well, but they're also the characters you spend the most time with. Huh. So why why give like why force your audience to sit with these people? Right. If you're like, man, I hate the like after the ninth or tenth example of why you should hate these people, it gets a little old. Yeah. Um. Essentially, this coven of witches conjures a demon forth. It possesses a young member of the court who decides to kill them off one one by one in supernatural ways. Uh. You know what's funny about this movie? Movie, not a single banshee. No, oh, no, no banshees. No banshees. No banshees. Not even like a bird. Nope. <laughs> no, no banshees. A specter. Uh, and so the curse is to kill off every member of this family. Spoiler alert, they get to the end. They think they've killed this boy. The only good there's only two good things in this movie. One is the opening credits, which were designed by Terry Gilliam of Monty Python. Okay. And so they have that cool sort of artwork that yep. he does. Uh, to, uh, when he thinks he's killed the ban, the, the demon, cause it's not a banshee, uh, when he thinks he's killed the demon and they're burying the boy, the gravedigger is like about to carve into the wooden cross and he's like, uh, what name do you want on it? And Vincent Price just literally goes, whatever you can spell. <laughs> and like, and that's, I guarantee was an ad lib yeah. by Vincent Price. It's the only, like, literally the only good thing in this movie. And it's, it's just, they're these awful people who deserve everything that's coming to them. And I think the problem is, the issue is, as I was saying before, Vincent Price believed in villains that had, like, a quality about them that, that the audience could retain. Right. You know, a sense of they've been wrong. There's none of that in this film. He is a flat-out, just awful human being. Yeah. And... It's the, I think it's the only time he's played a villain where I'm like, yeah, fucking kill this dude. Yeah, he like, sucks. Yeah, put all of this out of mi misery. On top of that, movie's poorly made. So mm. poorly made. Yeah. It's, of, of all the AIP pictures, looks the cheapest. And let me tell you, a lot of the AIP pictures use the same footage of House of Usher of a, <laughs> of the castle burning down. Yeah. And this one looks the cheapest. I, I probably saw... Was it the same castle burned down in The Raven? Yes. Okay, great. Love it's that. also used in Tales of Terror. It's used in uh, Tomb of Ligia. Yeah. It's used over and over again. Stock footage, baby. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah. So, Cry of the Banshee, outside of the pop culture impact it had, because Susie and the Banshees named themselves after it. Wow. Um, outside of that, it's genuinely... It's such an awful, awful movie. It's interesting because I think I in the Tingler, he also doesn't have like really like I guess the only reason why you're rooting for this doctor is because his wife is kind of a bitch. Right. Uh, right. Which is like a terrible motivation. Right. Like, right. Yeah. And but like there's literally all I could I kept thinking was like, just leave him there. Yeah. We scream when we're scared. <laughs> and then it's fine. But this guy like truly has no motivation to do anything. And like you said, like this villain just really doesn't have 
Yeah. Anything that makes me want to be like, oh, yeah, this a sympathy. Yeah. Like, there was never a point where I was like, oh, the witches wronged you. There's a reason you want these witches to die. Right. Like, there, but no, there wasn't even that. There was, it was just like, fuck these witches. And it's funny because in the Witchfinder General, like, that's his motivation as well. I want these witches to die. But there's like a real human inside there. And you believe that this sadist has the, capability of experiencing human emotions he's just chosen to turn them off right in in the cry of the banshee he's just a cardboard cutout of a person with a great voice uh voice of an angel though uh was there anything else you saw that you didn't particularly like because there is i mean i really didn't like shock even though it's the progenitor of the sort Mm. of villain that he would go on to play which is kind of this tepid thriller, the right. one about him being a psychiatrist who kills. And, like, he's driven mad by his lover, who's this woman who's basically like, kill for me. And in the end, he's like, change of plans and kills her. Like, you know, it's, yeah. I feel like everything else I saw, I was like, I know that this is a bad movie, but it's entertaining. Yeah. I mean, it's, he's always so charming and funny. Like, even in The Raven, there are some characters where I'm like, this is so dumb. But... It's fun and right. it's silly. There's two others that I want to mention them real quick before we move into. Uh, I want to mention The Bat, which is a, a thriller from 1959 that he did. It's based on a really famous play. And he saw the play as a kid and was terrified of it. And then just the movie, just the script's not there. He even said it himself. He said the script wasn't right. And it's it, it didn't play the same way. And then the other thing I want to mention is Percy's Progress, which is also in America known as It's Not the Size That Counts, which is a sex comedy from 1974 that he has what amounts to essentially a two-scene cameo in. It's a sequel to a movie in which a guy receives a penis transplant from a very well-endowed Lothario and the chaos that ensues from that. In the second movie, he's been on the run from police, so he's been living on a boat drinking champagne only, while this chemical's been introduced into the water supply, making every other man in the world impotent. And so everybody wants him to repopulate the earth. And Vincent Price is a very rich man who's like, get me a son. So it's down to that again. Percy and his magic penis. Is it a man? Is it a bird? No, it's Superstud. You said you'd get me out. Yes. Out the bloody frying pan into the fire. And it's his old lady's fire I've got to light. Don't be outraged, young man. The kings of ancient Greece did it all the time. Ye gods. Yes, them too. Can I say that the bat? I kind of liked. Really? I thought it's so... Like That was maybe the first movie I saw that I was like, the amount of campy nonsense. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's one of those movies where I was like, I'm not really scared, but this is funny. So, you know, Louis in defense of the bat. I get it. I get it. In defense of the bat. Oh, why don't we move into our five-star reviews? When we first started this whole process there was one movie you said I had to watch and I did and I loved it so much and it's 1950s Champagne for Caesar yes what I love is because like after what you said he is not the star of this movie he is the second fiddle right but he's so good and he's so funny uh Champagne for Caesar is a comedy about a quiz show this contestant guy who like is like really fucking smart he, like, knows everything, but he can't, like, get a job because he's kind of like a snooty McDooty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He lives with his sister, who's um, a piano teacher. They have a parrot who's a drunk. A drunk parrot. Voiced by Mel Blanc of Looney Tunes. Famous of Looney Tunes. Yes. It's, it's not their pet, but they found him. Right. They have. He's a refugee parrot 
who is an alcoholic. So th- there's a game show called Masquerade for Money. It's like, let's make a deal. You go uh, dressed up and you answer a question and uh, you win some money. Uh, and you can either bet that you're going to keep answering questions right to double your money. If you get it wrong, you win nothing. He sees a video of this happening and he's like, this is so stupid. And the show is sponsored by Milady Soaps. Uh, and he decides to go into Milady Soaps to interview for a job. And that's where he meets Burnbridge Waters. That's Vincent Price. Also, I have to say this fucking guy's name. The lead character, his name is Beauregard Bottomley. Camp, guys. Camp. Camp. Absolutely. Um, Burnbridge Waters, which is Vincent Price. He like is sitting there with his head askew and He's like on another realm. He does this thing where he's like, oh, he goes he, into trances. Yeah. He's like, oh, he's gone. You can't talk to him. Mm-mm, yeah. Nope. Uh, but they talk and for a while it's going fine. But then like, uh, Beauregard says a joke and Burnbridge is like, oh, joking. Nope. Hate it. Bye. And he doesn't get the job. And so essentially this big like revenge plot happens where he's like, I'm going to go on the show and just keep winning money and take over the entire company. And it's, just so, 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 so funny. Yeah. I, I love specifically he's calculated that Vincent Price's character, Burnbridge, has $40 million. And the scheme of this game show is that you double your money every yeah. time you go on. And so he's going to play until he gets $40, $40 million. million. At the end of each um, episode, he's like, no, I don't accept this money. I'll come back next week. And it keeps upping the stakes. And um, Burnbridge tries to, you know get people to get intel and like what's his weaknesses. There's love stories start intersecting all over. I will say some of those are kind of shitty, but the, like just a scene of, there's a scene where Beauregard goes to the, the soap factory and he's like, Oh, this is going to be mine. Can't wait. And Burnbridge goes down there and like a little devil appears on his shoulder and the devil's like starts talking and he's like, I already got this. Yeah, he literally says, Way ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, way ahead of you. <laughs> and I'm just like, holy shit. And it, it, it's just so funny. Like, there are multiple scenes. I can't even imagine what you're going to pick to put in here. Because he has so many good one-liners where he is nasty and rude. And he's like, oh, my Beauregard, like, there's nothing better than the poor man. The poor man's life is was what truly makes you happy. It's frightening to be wealthy. It's disastrous to be loaded. Do you know what I have to show for my life's work? Pills. Green pills to be taken after yellow pills. Purple pills to be taken before green pills. Ulcers and nerves. Ulcers that shriek. Nerves that jingle, jangle. Jingle. Jingle. Well, money won't buy you a new stomach. Right. Can't make you sleep at night. Right. Oh, you are so brilliant. Taxes, stocks, bonds. Payrolls, upkeep, bills. Right, Beauregard. But don't let them do it to you. I can take it. I don't count anymore. They've wrecked me. But don't let it happen to you. How can I ever thank you, Burnbridge? Oh, don't thank me, Beauregard. Just stay as you are. Walk out of here into the sunshine of a carefree world, wise in the knowledge that I have bestowed upon you. For it is my sincere conviction that the only way to be happy is to be poor. My dear Burnbridge, I see your point. I am about to make you the happiest man in the world. out of here, you thief. Get out of this building immediately. And when I take over in two weeks, let's do it quietly. No reception, please. And clean up the plant, won't you? Goodbye. I tried to be nice to you, but you wouldn't have it that way. Will you hide in yet? This is war! 
That's such a good pick. I did really love them. I had never seen it before. I knew it's a personal favorite of Vincent Price's because he always wanted to do more comedies. Yeah. And everybody kept casting him as serious roles. And like I said, he didn't want to be a lead. He didn't want to do all this serious stuff, you know? So this really showcases, I mean, because he gets to do slapstick. He gets to be like, he gets to be kind of conniving and evil. Um, he gets to do the businessman thing. It's so, it's such a specific fun character. I'm, I'm glad you can see that in it too, because at the time it wasn't a hit because it was 10 years past the screwball comedy. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of reviewers found it dated when it came out, which is terrible because I think it's just as funny as some of those movies, but because we're not constrained to time as a linear fashion when we're watching these older films you're able to see that it holds itself up against these other movies. Yeah, I think anyone could watch this movie today and thoroughly be entertained. So my five-star review, I was actually going to pick two, but I think I'm just going to pick one and then talk about the other one later. So my five-star review is 1971's The Abominable Dr. Fibes. So there you go. I love Dr. Fibes so much. It's stylish. It's classy. The most stylish. Oh, absolutely. And on a budget. Um, budget queens. But uh, it's a horror movie that's filled with art deco sets, but it's also like an incredible... Uh, dark humor underlaying it. And essentially what it is, is these doctors start dying in these very elaborate ways. Think Saw, but in a, like, less gruesome manner. Saw, but like, preposterous. Yeah, Saw with style. And what it is, is Dr. Fibes is a man who's seeking revenge on the nine doctors. It's actually eight doctors and one nurse. But on the nine people that killed his wife, she died while she was in their care. And while this happened, he rushed to the hospital to try and get to her, and he crashed his car, and it left him terribly scarred and unable to speak. But they think he's dead. They think Everybody thinks he's dead. Um, he's instead lives essentially in the soundproof basement of his mansion, where he has built mechanical automatons that form a band for him, and he plays the organ, and he hangs out with his assistant, who is named Volnavia. Volnavia. Who doesn't speak. And what's funny is... Beautiful like, gowns. Beautiful gowns. She originally was meant to be another clockwork creation of his, but they, the filmmakers were like, that's too ridiculous. But still make her walk like a robot. Yeah, yeah. It is full, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say it, it is full faggotry. Like, <laughs> it is, like, he's wearing, it's, it's Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Like, through LSD... And like a kaleidoscope, and there, there's the the hot Volnavia, and and they're constantly dancing together, even though he's all, all the time talking about his wife. wife. By the way, did you catch his wife's name, Victoria Regina? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a little inside reference. Yeah, yeah. My love, my sweet queen, my noble wife, severed too quickly. Too cruelly from this life, I remain and suffer to bring delivery of your pain, of fires drawn and of memories met. Soon we shall hold our two precious hearts in single time. Essentially, you know, he wants to get this revenge 
on the on these doctors and he's killing them off using mm-hmm. the plagues of the old testament yes so the police have to both interview a scientist and a rabbi yeah. to figure out what's going yeah, on the rabbi's like um what <laughs> uh what's great is you also get joseph cotton as the lead uh detective in this movie and what was really funny is so vincent price's character can't speak unless he has he's plugged in <laughs> he's plugged in and so he you know, he was always going to record his dialogue later in the film. And what they did in order, because the mask that he wears is actual Vincent Price's face. Right. But they would coat his face in colloidin, which is a, basically a medical adhesive that wouldn't allow him to move his face. Oh, shit. Um, and so he would, like, m- mouth words without yeah. moving his mouth. Um, and so Joseph Cotton got so pissed off. He's like, I have all this dialogue. I'm expected to remember it. You get to dub your lines later. And Vincent Price broke his makeup to say, yes, but I still know the lines. <laughs> um, but uh, I would have been like, fuck you. I have a pound of medical grade <laughs> shit on my face. Um, You're wearing like straight man clothes. Exactly. Um, but what's great about Dr. Fibes, too, is he is he's a man doing this awful thing. But they decided last minute to make the character much more sympathetic than it was, which was originally written. You know, he many times mentions in the movie, he's only killing for this vengeance. He's only killing these nine people. I'm not saying it's right, but there's, there's a, there's a pure insane quality to this character. Well, there's that makes you really appreciate him. The, the, the ending is kind of romantic also. Yeah. Um, because, do we should we spoil? Should we not spoil? Uh, let's not spoil. But like, there's All a very romantic. There's a romantic ending where he is at peace. Yeah, let's just say that. And and you don't often get that from your monster. In fact, it feels much more like a Universal Studios monster movie concept at the end. Even though most of them die, like the closure that you get of the of the romantic portion, it feels like a real thing. Yeah. It's funny, there's a sequel the next year. Uh, the script is nowhere near as good. I actually just watched it today for the first time. I'd never seen the sequel before. Um, the script is not anywhere near as good, but the sets, it was clear that they got more money because this was such a hit. Mm. The sets are gorgeous. There's this amazing scene towards the end of the second one where Volnavia is in this like circular room full of mirrors and she's just sort of dancing around. It's very cool, very trippy. I will say the movie set in the twenties does not really look like the twenties. Second movie looks more like the twenties. I mean, the Art Deco stuff is great. I was, but like, like, I was like, I fully thought it was hippy dippy. Yeah, like exactly. Sixties level stuff. Yeah, second movie is a little more committed to the nineteen twenties stuff. But I kind of like it. I mean, I, I like I. Yeah, I'm um, not mad that they're not appropriate for the time period. But but I, I, there's something about his performance and the fact that he has such limited physical facial range yeah that um you know it's it's interesting his makeup his burn makeup at the end of the movie it's very good it's good it's, it's a mask he didn't want to sit for hours oh, good it's for a mask him. good for him yeah it looks sp- spooky yeah i like how romantic it is too mm-hmm. and yeah yeah he's a villain i can get behind <laughs> i'm not gonna go there um <laughs> it reminds me so it oh rem- he was a top <laughs> <laughs> leave that in well, you see this. He's at the fucking, like, organ right. and just, like, fully... Camping it up. Yeah. yeah. It's... And the, the colors... Yeah, <sighs> he's able to make you buy... Like, this is maybe... You know, you keep using the word preposterous. This is maybe one of the most preposterous yeah. of all the characters. Oh, yeah. But he makes you believe it. When they, like, cut through, like, the walls and yeah. they're like, oh, hey. <laughs> and and the, full, the whole time I was like, he's just been hanging out with his band? Yeah. 
preposterous, but it looks good. Was there anything else that you saw that you particularly really liked? I would give a shout out any day to any of the Poe adaptations. I love all the Tomb of Lygia is great with his like weird sunglasses. House of Usher where he's like bleach blonde. Uh, Tales of Terror where he's, you know, playing these three different roles. I will say in House of Wax, I thought like the, um, the horror of like the melting of everything yes. is really fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, and the whole idea. I mean, and I didn't watch the remake, so I, I don't feel like I've seen the remake. It's bad. Is it anything like this? No, one? not really. It, it feels it's much sl- more slashery. Right. And it feel, it felt like I remember it being like more like country kids go into the country yeah. and like whatever. This was like fully, I'm a high artist person and I am not only taking inspiration from people, but like finding people and making them into these artworks. So I like that movie a lot. The other one that I was going to mention is a uh, film noir from 1944 called Laura. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. Vincent Price's personal favorite role. He said Uh-oh. that it's the best performance he ever gave in a movie. It's I don't want to get too far into it because it, there's a big twist in the middle. And but essentially, it's a policeman investigating the murder of this woman named Laura. There's a writer that she was best friends with that's played by Clifton Webb named Waldo Lidecker, and then Vincent Price plays Shelby Carpenter, who's like a parasitic playboy who was her fiance, and he's like tries to be like the gosh golly G and he gets to put on a little bit of the southern accent that maybe he would have actually had in real life. Yeah. I forgot to tell you, I also read palms. I cook, I swallow swords, I mend my own socks and never eat garlic or onions. What more can you want of a man? Don't listen to that scallywag. I didn't expect to find him here, Louise. Well, what do you mean? We're old friends. She feeds me, humors me, repairs me and refuses to marry me, don't you, honey? I do. She has good sense. Now, wait just a minute. Thanks, Louise. You're wasting your time. She's got good sense, too. You're jealous. It's this investigation into this woman's death, and there's this great painting of her that hangs on the wall. She's played by Jean Tierney when you see her in the flashbacks, when you find out how, like, Waldo Lidecker meets her. And there's, like I said, there's an amazing twist in the middle. Um, And then everything that happens after that, it's just so good. It's so well. Otto Preminger was the director. He was not the original director. He came in, and the cast was like... Like, who is this man? And he later found out that the previous director had called them all and told them that he was going to fire them. Wow. And then, like, he really found a way to unify the the cast and make them, you know, give really great performances. And, great. And, yeah, and, and Vincent Price in this kind of... It's funny, he doesn't have to be foppish at all because um, Clifton Webb, uh, who was gay in real life, like, playing this columnist... Waldo Lidecker is really yeah. like he gets to deliver some of the best lines in it like at one point somebody says like oh I wouldn't want to find myself on the wrong side of your pen and he's like I don't use pen I use a goose quill dipped in poison <laughs> you know so that's good um I liked House on Haunted Hill I love House on Haunted Hill super preposterous but um, also looks this the most again very campy spooky but not like you know horrifying um that scene with his wife where they talk about all the time she tried to kill him yeah you remember the fun we had when you poisoned me? <laughs> Something you ate, the doctor said. Yes, arsenic on the rocks. Annabelle, you'd do it again if you thought you could get away with it, wouldn't you? Darling, what makes you think that? Something about you. Yeah, that hanging is very uncomfortable in case you get any more ideas. It's like it's a really good whodunit also. Yeah. Because I they it's it does it a really smart thing where they introduce you to all these characters and it's like don't you see it in his eyes? Greedy, no, like it's just like really funny, you know? 
Acid vats. Yeah. Dr. Fives. Acid vats. Acid vats. Scream and scream again. Acid Acid vats. So before we move into our fast forward, why don't we do our mixed reviews review? My one-star review was 1959's The Tingler. My one-star review was 1970's Cry of the Banshee. <laughs> Very good. Uh, my five-star review is 1950's Champagne for Caesar. And my five-star review was 1971's The Abominable Dr. Fives. Fives, fives. Fives. <laughs> fives, fives, fives across the board. Fives across the board. <laughs> um, Honestly, Valnavia across the board. Valnavia. Valnavia! <laughs> um, Where's the... I, oh, I bet you there's a drag queen. I bet you there's... A, there's gotta be. The next season of Dragula. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, let's move into our fast forward. Vincent Price is famously dead. Yes, uh, still. Hmm. Yeah. He has been dead since 93. And I guess there's really not too much to add to his legacy. We've mentioned his art gallery, which you can still go to. Um, LA friends, please go and visit. Absolutely. Tell us how it's like. Absolutely. Um, Halloween's coming up. This is Vincent Price time of year. I'm sure you'll catch some of his movies on TV. I don't, I mean, I don't really know what to say going forward in terms of, I mean, they just did 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo movie mm. uh, to wrap up the plot lines because 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo famously never ended. Wow. And they were supposed to catch all 13 ghosts and they didn't. Hello. So that that is coming either out already or is coming out soon. Is Vincent Van Gogh going to be part of it? He is. Uh, they got a voice impersonator. Scooby-Doo, where are you? I've been trying to reach you on this thing for months. Oh, no. I found the 13th ghost. You must come at once to catch him. I wonder if, you know, they're... In today's age, uh, it feels like every... Like, anything and everything is cause and reason to, like, celebrate and have a moment, you know? Anything to to make content and go viral, whatever. Um, and so I wonder if there's, like... It feels the time is ripe for a renaissance or, you know, because it's, it's that whole thing where people are like, oh... We need stuff for Halloween. We need stuff right. of the moment. And it feels like Vincent Price has so much that truly is for everyone. Like, no matter who you are, you can find something in his canon to satisfy your needs and wants for entertainment, especially in this time of season. Like, if you're looking for an entertaining, easy Halloween watch, like, yeah. why not dive into... Vincent Price and his work. Uh, I, I ended up watching so many. I've now seen two thirds of the Vincent Price damn, movies that are out there. Daniel. Um, and yeah, so like, yeah, like you said, there is literally something for everybody. You know, there's, there's not, you know, they're not even all horror movies. You pick Champagne for Caesar as yeah. your five star review. Um, he did a couple of, uh, you know, he did this Jules Verne adaptation where it's called Master of the World, where he plays a man who wants to bring about world peace by force. Uh, right. Um, and he, they did this 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ripoff where he played the villain in that movie. That's not a horror movie. It's really fun and beautiful to look at. Um, but yeah, it's, I think his, the variety of his career is so interesting and the way that he was able to connect to his audience. Like I said, a lot of people don't know who he is nowadays. I hope people listen to this episode and they come away with a better understanding of a person who was really trying to give his all during the time which he had. I think that's what's really interesting about Vincent Price is he was such a people pleaser. He wanted to be remembered and he wanted people to remember him fondly. Yeah, and I think, you know, nostalgia is for sale, okay? Yeah. And I 
just can't think. I mean, between him and the Universal Monster movies, like, I just don't think there's like any better combination or, you know, the formula exists, guys. If you go out and if you're looking for, you know, a very classic night of just uh, old school horror, that's not going to make you like cringe and like squirm. Because maybe that's my deal with like horror. It's just like, I don't like feeling bad. Right. Uh, you know, and there's and that I certainly have that issue with a lot of modern horror, too. So. Right. And so a lot of these movies, they don't they don't feel bad. They feel like giving you the fantastical, otherworldly, you know, um, spooky, fun Halloween vibes. Like, there is still fun here. There's fun to be had in the realm of horror. Um, and I wish we had more of that. <laughs> you know, I I love Hocus Pocus, but I don't know how many times I could see that movie. Right. Um, and it's I think it's beneficial for everyone to um, continue expanding your library of uh, uh you know, fun, spooky things to watch this season. And uh, hopefully some people listening to this will um, go out and watch some spooky movies. Go see the, go see the bat guys. Yeah, I've been <laughs> shit on it, but I think it's really fun. And, and also like, I, I can't think of a better, more altruistic person to, to oh, give that crown to absolutely somebody who was not any, in any way wicked or devious in his real life, but delighted yeah. In that atmosphere. Yeah. So. Um, and also a lot of his movies are available for streaming on oh, absolutely. Uh, Amazon, Amazon Prime. Prime. Yeah. yeah. That's how, I mean, that's how I ended up seeing a ton of them. Yep. So, yeah. So I guess that wraps up Vincent Price, who led an incredibly long life and it was very important to me and I hope ends up being important to some of you guys. Uh, how can you find us online though? Oh, we are so many places, Gavin. Oh, absolutely. You can contact us on twitter at at the mixed reviews we are on facebook just type in the mixed reviews you can email us at reviews mixed at gmail.com we're also on instagram at the underscore mixed underscore reviews absolutely and if you want to listen to us you can listen to us on itunes spotify stitcher radio iHeartMedia, google play music uh we are everywhere mm-hmm. and if you listen to us on apple podcasts please rate and review us give Give, give, give us your five star reviews. Give us, give them to us. <laughs> um, give us some five star reviews and leave us a review, and we'll read it on the show. We love doing that. Yeah. So. Uh, I hope you guys have a really fun and spooky season. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time. Yeah, with some more spooky business. More spooky. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> okay. Bye. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.